Welcome to the Unite Church podcast. For more information about Unite Church, visit us at unitechurchak.org. Now, enjoy this message from Rick Benjamin. Unite Church, good morning. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Now, Pentecost means 50. Pentecost is the Feast of Israel, 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And for us, Pentecost is special because Pentecost was that special day when the Holy Spirit came, and he came to stay. Aren't you glad? Jesus said he'll be with you forever. And so I wore my red tie today for the Holy Spirit. Red is the color of the Spirit. Did you know that? Because of the fire, the fire of Pentecost. And we sang about that. Thank you, Billy, for the songs about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill this heart again. I was singing that. I had my own Pentecost almost 50 years ago. It's true. At a summer camp like you guys are going to this summer. And it was a great, unforgettable, awesome experience. But it didn't just last me from that day till now. Every day I need to make that prayer. Lord, fill me again. Pour out that Holy Spirit fire. I love that. Thank you for all that today. Today the message begins in Romans chapter 9. If you have a regular paper Bible, hold it up. Anybody still have a Bible? Thank you for that. All right. If you have a digital one, that counts too. So open up either one to Romans chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter, and we're going to have all the words for you up on the screen. Here we go. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire, or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Amen. Leave your Bible open to that. We know it's a lot. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he came to stay on Pentecost. We thank you that he's still with us, the church, even now. We thank you that he's inside all of us who are believers in you. We thank you that he inspired the scripture. We ask you now for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Teach all of us what you wrote in this book. Help us understand. Help us respond to what you're saying to us today about how and why you chose us to follow you. Help me, God, to be your servant. Just activate, energize the gifts you put in my life for your people, to feed them, to challenge them, to encourage them, to equip them to go back into their world today and tomorrow and this week, empowered by your word and by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Book of Romans. It's in three sections, actually. And we have that broken down for you. The first one is the first eight chapters. It's all beautiful, doctrinal, theological teaching about justification by faith. That's how we are made right with God. About grace and faith and salvation and righteousness. Then the last section, the third section, starts in chapter 12 all the way to chapter 16. Very practical teaching about how to live, how to live in the world, how to live in the church, how to love each other and so on. Most of the epistles go like that. Part A is the doctrinal teaching. Part B is how to live. It makes sense. First he teaches, this is who you are. This is the truth. And then he says, now go do it. There's always that second part, that practical part. Now go live it. All right. But only Romans has this middle section, number two. It's chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's kind of unique. Of all the epistles, only this one has this section. And it's all about one subject. And that subject is God's plan for Israel the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Now, we've been teaching Romans for a couple of summers now. And last summer, we finished up that first section. We ended up in Romans chapter 8. Some of the verses that Josh mentioned earlier. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The spirit of him that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. We love those verses. And so now it kind of turns this corner into Romans chapter 9. 
The name Israel is mentioned 14 times in these three chapters. He uses the word the Jews two times. It's all about them. My footnote in my Bible reads like this. Listen. Paul addresses three urgent questions occasioned by the rejection of the gospel by many Jews in Paul's day. That's how it was. One, has the word of God to Israel concerning their salvation come to nothing? Two, has God completely and finally rejected his people Israel? And three, is the gospel incapable of saving the Jews? Paul's answer to all three questions is an emphatic no. And that's the answer we're going to begin to get here in Romans chapter 9. That's how it was. It's true what it says. The first Christians were all Jewish people, all Israelites. That's right, the first apostles, the disciples. But then something began to happen right away where the Jewish people began to reject the Christian message, the Jesus movement. And then in came these Gentiles, and that was a very new thing and a very wonderful thing. And what happened over time was it seemed like it was becoming a totally Gentile Christian church movement. So the question is, what about the Israelites? Okay, that's how we're coming into this chapter here in this section. It was a big question for them. And it still is today. We have some questions today. Israel issues. A lot of Christians have a lot of confusion about what are we supposed to think about the nation of Israel now. For example, a lot of people think about the last days, the days before Christ comes again, and Bible prophecy all around their thoughts about Israel. So in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, a lot of Christians were very excited. Jesus is coming in this generation, they said. Of course, that was 70 years ago, and we're still looking for his coming. And so people have these thoughts about Israel being in that land, Israel building a temple again. You may hear about that. Lots of Christian books written about this subject. What are we supposed to think about that? Secondly, a lot of people think, well, Israel, they're God's people, so that modern country would call Israel, is everything they do God's will? I've been there two times. I love Israel. I love being there. I bought the T-shirt. I'm a fan. I bought a shirt that said, Israel is real. Get it? But just because they're Israelites, does that mean whatever they do with their military and their foreign policy, is that all God's will? Good question. We'll see. Another big question today is a lot of Christians and a lot of churches are exploring what they call the Jewish roots of Christianity. And they're going back and looking into the Old Testament and the law. And honestly, many churches and Christians are going back under the law and thinking that even though we're Christian, we have to go back and obey the law of Moses. I'm not making this up. It's a real big question right now, even in Anchorage. It's true. So we have lots of ideas and questions bouncing around about this subject. That's why we come to these three chapters here. They're supposed to help us. Romans 9, 10, 11 should make it clear. Unfortunately, Romans 9 especially has become sort of a Bible battleground between Christians. One Bible teacher calls Romans 9 the most misunderstood chapter in Scripture. And this is the one they gave me to teach today. <laughs> Woo! We're just going to hit the highlights, so pray for me, listen, and here we go. It all began with love. Did you see how much Paul said he loved Israel? We should stop and just be in awe of that. Paul himself was an Israelite, and he said, I love my people very much. And by the way, I thought I was an Israelite too. My last name is Benjamin, that's right. 
I've had Jewish friends say, oh, yeah, Rick, you're one of us. And I wouldn't mind. So a year ago on Father's Day, Ancestry.com had a sale, so I did it. Anybody else do this? Come on. Plain old white, English, Scotch, Irish, Welsh. There's not an Israelite back there anywhere. I'm not from the tribe of Benjamin. Too bad. By the way, Paul was. That was his tribe. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he loved his people so much. Did you hear what he said? He wished he could be cursed and cut off from Jesus if they would get saved. The Greek word is anathema, if you ever heard that word. Yeah, it means like what it sounds like it means. That's what he's saying. That's how much he loved them. Think about that. Do you love anybody that much? Wow, it's stunning. So right away, Paul's example of love for Israel is an example to us too, to love Israel and everybody else. There's no room for racism here. There's no room for hating anybody here. The first thing he says is, I love them. That's where this is coming from. Amen. Later on in chapter 11, he called himself the apostle to the Gentiles. But it didn't mean he forgot about the Jews. In the book of Acts, it records every place Paul went, he would go to the synagogue first. Like he said in chapter 1 of Romans, to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. He would go to the Jews first in every city and tell them about the Messiah, about Jesus. And then just like every time, they kicked him out. And rejected him. And he would go sometimes literally next door to the Gentiles and tell them about Jesus. He did it over and over again because they kept on rejecting. They kept on, like it said, stumbling over the cornerstone, the rock. Look how much God gave to Israel. There's a long list, all of his wonderful blessings. The adoption, he called them his own son, his own children. The glory, they saw the glory on Mount Sinai. The glory in the tabernacle, it means the visible, powerful presence of God, the glory in the temple. They had the covenants, the covenant with Abraham way back, the covenant of law with Moses, the covenant with King David. They had all those great promises from God, commitments from God even. They had the law that was given on Mount Sinai. They had the temple in Jerusalem, all the promises of the prophets of the Messiah and salvation. The patriarchs, the word means the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of that, and that's where Jesus came from, and he said, he's God forever blessed, amen. He had to stop and just praise Jesus right there for a minute. All those blessings, okay. In fact, in this chapter, we read quotes from 12 different places in the Old Testament, we call it. Did you know that? We read quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Hosea, sure. Thank you, Israel, for preserving the Bible for us. It's a huge, wonderful gift they gave us the 39 books we now call the Old Testament. Thank you. Yes, Israel was greatly blessed with that whole list up there. But listen, all those blessings only mean they're more responsible to God for all that they've been given. Right. And by the way, that applies to you and me too. It got real quiet in here right there. Because we all know that thing Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be Asked, required. That's right. So Israel had all this information about God, and they didn't actually respond very well with what they were given by God. We'll get back to that in a minute. In this chapter, he gives four examples of people 
that God chose. Now, he's getting up to the nation that God chose, the chosen people, Israel. But he uses individual examples, and here's the list. How God chose Abraham, the first patriarch. How God chose his son Isaac, and not the older brother who was named Ishmael. How God chose Jacob, and not the older one. They were twins, but Esau came out first. He was the oldest, technically. But God passed over those Firstborn, and went right to Isaac and Jacob. And then again, how God chose Pharaoh. There's a bunch of questions here. I counted. In the words we read, there's 11 questions in this chapter. It's kind of a Q&A. Question and answer chapter of the Bible. So I have a cue for us right now. Here it is. How and why does God choose? Who does God choose? Why does he choose the people that he chooses? Is it random? Does God throw darts? Oh, you, okay, oh, that'll work. Do, do, you, no, I don't like that one, no. There's an answer up there. This is how and why God chooses. God chooses or elects, that's the word, E-L-E-C-T, elects based on foreknowledge. That's how he does it. In other words, it's not random. God is not throwing darts. God has reasons how and why he chooses who he does, all right? And we have that in two very important verses. One of them, just back a few verses in Romans chapter 8. Remember this? For those God foreknew, there it is, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. It's saying God foreknew you and me, brothers and sisters, and then he chose, he predestined us actually to become like Jesus. Wow. And the second verse is 1 Peter 1. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, verse 2, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. See that? God chose according to his foreknowledge through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean? God is God. He knows everything. He knows the future. He knows things before. That's why it's called foreknowledge. God, in his foreknowledge, he looks ahead and sees how every human being will respond to him or not. And that's the foreknowledge that God uses to choose the people that he chooses. We'll see examples of that, a whole bunch of them right here. God does not choose based on what we have done in the past. In other words, we don't earn God's choice. Like he said, the twins weren't even born yet. But God made choices about those two. He doesn't choose based on what we have done, but in a way, God chooses based on what he knows we will do. You see the difference? It's a big difference. That's right. What about Abraham? He was just a kind of a random guy. He was not an Israelite. There were no Israelites. He lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees where they worshiped idols and who knows what. And God chose that guy. You ever wonder why? Why him? He could have chose a Japanese guy or a person living in South America somewhere. Well, he chose that person out of all the people of the world to form a new nation. Why? Because of God's foreknowledge. God knew some things. Oh, I see that man. That guy is going to obey me. That guy is going to believe me. Like it says here, I've chosen him. He'll direct his children and his household after him. God knew that. He's going to be that kind of a guy. I can work with that. You're called, Abraham. And so God just appears to him, begins to speak to him, and all the rest. That's how. That's why. God knew something good about that man. How about Jacob? Not Esau. The twins. God chose Jacob 
Not because he was a good guy. If you know the Jacob story, he wasn't a great guy. But there was one thing that was great about Jacob, and God knew it. In his foreknowledge, God knew that Jacob would value what God values, actually. That Jacob would value the covenant and the birthright and the blessing and the inheritance. And he wanted those things. And he saw Esau, too, that other guy, the firstborn, the hairy one. That's what his name means, hairy. He saw that guy, and he saw that one day Esau would be hungry. And he thought he was going to die of starvation, and he wasn't. And Jacob was cooking some kind of soup out of beans. And Jacob says, give me the blessing. Give me the inheritance. Give me all that wonderful, valuable stuff from the firstborn. And Esau goes, take it. I don't care. I'm going to die. Give me the soup. And God said, I can't work with that. But this Jacob thing, the thing I see in him, I'm going to work with that. Jacob became Israel. That's him. And he became the father of the 12 sons and the 12 tribes and all the rest. And God knew also Esau would become another country. Remember he told the mom, there's two nations battling in your womb. Talk about labor and delivery. Wow. The other nation that came from Esau was called Edom, E-D-O-M. They were a problem. They were idol worshipers. God said, I'm going with Jacob. You see, based on his foreknowledge. Now, how about this example of Pharaoh? We're talking about the guy down in Egypt. Remember the Ten Commandments, Yule Brenner and all that? We're talking about that guy. God chose Pharaoh. At first, this doesn't seem to fit because Pharaoh had this problem. He had a hard heart. Look at this. God said, I'm going to harden his heart. Back in Exodus 4, he told Moses, I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. What? And later he said, I have hardened his heart so that I may perform these miraculous signs. Oh, God is doing something with this hard-hearted guy. But now look at this. Who else hardened Pharaoh's heart? Next slide. And there it is. Thank you, Rodney. Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Bible said. Do you know the book of Exodus says that God hardened his heart nine times and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart nine times? Here's a couple of them. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Look at this. He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. God looked ahead and saw this guy Pharaoh down there in Egypt. Remember when they were slaves down there, 400 years? And God said, that guy is a stubborn, adamant, rebellious, inflexible guy. I can work with that. How can he work with that? Okay, here's another question and answer. Q&A. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Answer, both. He had a Pharaoh. He had a bad hardened heart. So God says, I'll, I'll make it more hardenized. But God didn't cause his heart to be hardened. That's why it was a sin for him to have that hard heart. It was a sin. God used sin? That's what we're saying. Yes. God knew Pharaoh would harden his heart, so God chose him and made it harder to bring glory to God. Because here's what's going on. God wanted the exodus to be unforgettable, like he said, so the whole world will know. Not just sneaking out one night, you know. No, he wanted to, first of all, destroy the religion of Egypt. Did you know that? The ten plagues systematically wiped out all their gods, Ra and the Nile River and all the rest. When... Israel left, Egypt had no more religion. It was destroyed by God. 
So God wanted Pharaoh's heart to get harder and harder so we could do eight, nine, ten, all the plagues and open up the Red Sea. Look at the next slide. Oh, we, I, we skipped it then. I'll just read it. This is what God said at the Red Sea. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. What? And the rest said, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. In the movie, the Ten Commandments, remember, Pharaoh comes back. His army is destroyed now. He plops down next to the widow queen lady. She was terrible. Anyway, he sits next to her, and he says these words. His God is God. <laughs> I love that. Right on. Moses, God is God, and the whole world knew it. And Israel never forgot it. They always remembered the Exodus and the Passover and the Red Sea because of something God did. Do you see? God saw this guy's hard heart, and God said, I can work with that too. Now we come to David, right? Why did God choose David? Some other guy was the king. His name was Saul, different family, different tribe. God decides to start over with this kid named David. Youngest son, again, number seven. Shepherd boy, nobody. But God looked ahead and he saw something. Remember this? I have found David. Son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. I can work with that. I'm going to do that. And he made him the king. He anointed him. And he made promises to him, that covenant. Your son will sit on the throne forever. And we know who that son is, David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Wow. All because of that. How about the apostle Paul? Why did God choose Paul? Some say because he was so smart, God could use his brains. He was so educated, God could use his education. You know what Paul said? This is why and how God chose me. For this reason, there's the reason again. God has reasons, see? I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. You know what Paul said? I know why God called me and chose me. Because I was the worst. And so then after that, everybody would always know, well, if Saul could get saved, I guess I could get saved. At worst, I'm second worst because he already said he's worse. To this day, one of the great testimonies of the Christian faith is, did you hear what happened to Saul of Tarsus? The greatest persecutor, our greatest enemy in a moment becomes our greatest champion and our greatest messenger ever? And his story says, there's hope for me. That's why and how God shows that man. How about this example? It's another slide. I'm going to talk about my father who's here today. He was number six in a poor family in western Montana. Really hardly any influence of Christ or the gospel in their lives. Single mom kid. And... How was it that this person got to Seattle, Washington, 74 years ago, and gave his life to Christ one night in a powerful conversion experience? I believe God looked ahead and said, I see that guy. Really, honestly, just kind of a nobody from nowhere. And I see that that guy is going to keep on saying yes to me, which is my dad's awesome virtue. Throughout his whole life of ministry, he just kept on saying yes from that first night. Because God wanted to do something in Alaska, and something from Alaska, something rather great and kind of spectacular, really. And God needed people 
that would keep on saying yes to him. That's why. How about this one? I love it when Pastor Josh Tanner talks about how God called and chose him. Nikiski? Next to a chemical plant? Zero Christian background? Don't you love it when he talks about how he heard the gospel from Joni? Thank you forever. How and why did God chose this man? God saw this thing in him that I hope you see too. This deep teachableness and humility and willingness to learn and keep on growing and changing. From the first moment, yeah, God saw all the passion and all the intelligence and all the other things we see, but God said, I see something in that guy that I can work with. So he orchestrates his whole life to that moment. Wow. How and why did God choose me? It comes down to each and every one of us. I think about this. I don't know the answers. I look back, my grandparents, my parents, this church, my whole life, I'm going to be 63 this month. I look through all of this, and I, I see how God orchestrated and led and arranged everything. What was it he saw in me? He knows. I think he saw this. As a little boy, I would just fall in love with Jesus and never, ever fall out of love with Jesus to this very moment. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. Because it says in verse 24, this applies to even us whom he also called. It's not just these people long ago and far away. It's people like my dad and Josh and me and you, even us, all of us that he's called. And yes, of course, when you think of Abraham and Jacob and David and me, you know we all have weaknesses and failures and problems. Oh, my goodness. Abraham's family was a disaster. Come on. All kinds of crazy things. Lee Arbor was here last a couple weeks ago and talked about Abraham lying, the big coward to save his own hide, putting his wife at risk. That's the guy God chose? Yeah. Because in a way, all that stuff almost didn't matter. It did matter. It was sin and it had consequences and all the rest. But God kind of looked past all of that. He saw what he saw that he could work with. He saw that in Abraham and David and my dad and me and all of us. He chose every one of us and all of us in his grace, it's all grace. He didn't have to do it because of what he knew about each one of us and how he could use us in his great purposes. New Living Translation, verse 11 says, God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, not according to their good or bad works. And how many are glad? Me too. Many Christians believe that Romans 9 is talking about God choosing who goes to heaven. Or, in another way, God choosing who goes to heaven and who does not go to heaven. None of these examples we went through now are about who goes to heaven or not. All the examples in Romans 9, like Abraham and Pharaoh and all the rest, are about how and why God chooses people and how he'll use them in this life. That's the choosing we're talking about here. And again, even the whole nation of Israel. Remember, this really is about Israel. That's the main topic here. God chose Israel. Why? In his foreknowledge, God knew they would preserve the law and the prophets, and they would bring forth Jesus. When the law came on Mount Sinai, and there was thunder and lightning and dark smoke and fire, Israel said, don't let God speak to us. It's in the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy. They said, Moses, you go up there. God can speak to you. You come back down. Tell us what he said, and everything he said we will do. 
And that day God said, when they said that, that was great. And he said, oh, that they would always have hearts like that to always obey me. But he knew also that they wouldn't. He knew Israel would try to get saved by legalism, by obeying the law. That was never the point. He knew they would become proud of being the chosen nation, looking down on all the other nations. They would keep all the blessings to themselves, not sharing them with anybody else. He knew they would not share the gospel, and they would reject Jesus, like I said in verse 33. Guess what? Israel was hardened. There's that word again. It's over in chapter 11. Just like their old enemy, Pharaoh. They got hard hearts. And God said, I can work with that. He chose Israel knowing all those things. God knew he could use this too to achieve his great purpose. And here it is. God's great purpose is not just one chosen nation. It's all the nations. God's purpose is not just one people. It's all people everywhere. All the nations. We're not saying that God has rejected Israel or replaced Israel with us Gentiles. No. We're saying that God always wanted all of us, both of us, Jews and Gentiles. Listen, we Gentiles are not plan B. Plan A was Israel. Well, they messed up. Okay, I'll take you Gentiles. Come on in. Plan B. It's not that way at all. There is no plan B. We're talking about God. There's only ever been plan A, one plan. His great mission, his great plan is to include all the nations, Jews and Gentiles. He wants the whole world. And he told that to Abraham. Remember Genesis chapter 12. Do I have that one? Maybe I do. There it is. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It says in verse 8, not the children by physical descent, but those of the promise. It says in verse 26, the people who were not his people now are called the people of the living God. I have an announcement. It turns out, I am an Israelite. Hallelujah. I'm a child of Abraham by faith in Jesus. And so are you if you're a believer today. One of my mentors, spiritual fathers, I had many, Bible teacher Kevin Connor. Maybe you didn't know. He passed away this year in February, 93 years old. Love Kevin. Miss you, Kevin. One time he said to me, Rick, it's grace not race. So simple. It's not like Israelites are more saved than the rest of us. He's going to say in chapter 10, we all get saved the exact same way. Japanese, Native Alaskans, Israelites, anybody. It's not about ethnicity or where you come from. It's about Jesus and his grace on all of us. So what about Israel now? What about all of God's promises and covenants in the 21st century? Are they hardened forever? Check chapter 11, verse 25. Has God rejected them forever? Check chapter 11, verse 1. We're getting ahead. So come back next week and find out the answer to the question, what about Israel? But here's a hint. God knows something else. They're going to change again. So come back next week and hear the rest of that good story. What we're talking about here is called God's amazing sovereignty. That's a big word. Theologians like words like that. What does sovereignty mean? It means God is the king. There's a psalm that says, the Lord is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Bible teacher Bob Mumford used to say, God thinks he's God. 
He knows he's God. He's the ultimate king over all creation and everything that happens. But listen now carefully. God's sovereignty does not mean that God does everything or that God controls everything or that all that happens is God's will. Plenty of stuff happens in this world that is not God's will. Just look back at the last couple thousand years. Human history proves that everything happening is not God's will. The beauty of God's amazing sovereignty is this. God takes all of that, all the things we do, all of our choices and failures and sins even, and he makes it all work out somehow for his great purpose. That's the amazing thing about God's sovereignty. Again, Romans 8, one of our famous verses back there. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Don't you love that verse? It's still in the Bible this morning. Amen. It doesn't say in all things God does everything. It's not all scripted out. It isn't like fatalism where everything is just already set and we're just going through the motions somehow and it's already done. No, it's not like that. A lot of stuff is happening that's making it harder. The glory of God's sovereignty is that when he gets it all done, he will accomplish what he has always wanted. His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll all stand back and go, wow, you did it. How did you do that? Ephesians 1 says he makes everything work out according to his plan. Somebody said God takes a mess and makes a message. That's the whole story. He's taken this whole big giant mess of the fall of man and human sin and all the tragedy of history, that whole giant mess. He's going to make a message. And the message is, look what I can do. I can transform these rebels into my children who love me. And in heaven forever, we'll all be around the throne from every tribe and every tongue and every nation singing, you're the worthy one. You did it. You did it. You did it. And then we're going to summarize now the way he did in chapter 9. The picture of the potter. Anybody here make pots, pottery? They call it throwing pots. Why do they call it throwing pots? Do you throw this stuff? Anyway, I I'm not a potter, you can tell. He said, the pot can't say to the potter, why would you make me this kind of pot? You have a talking pot. Actually, you have a whining pot. <laughs> why did you make me like this? I want to be like her. This reminds us of this beautiful Old Testament story in the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 18, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. And the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I'll relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. We're going to leave it there. When my kids were little, there was this guy named Rob Evans, the donut man. Remember the donut man? Okay, the donut man, he, he was the guy that wrote Bible songs for kids, Christian songs. 
on cassette tapes. It's a small plastic thing, like a little box. And you put it in this thing. Never mind. Rob Evans, the donut man, he was called the donut man because life without Jesus is like a donut because there's a hole in the middle of your heart. Ah. Oh. Rob Evans had a song about the potter's house, about this prophecy. So the potter took the play and squish, 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 squish. The potter took the play and smush, smush, smush to make a brand new pot. What he made, he liked a lot. It's a funny song for kids. How many times in your life have you felt this going on? Squish, squish, squish. <laughs> smush, smush, smush. Okay, we're starting over. We used to sing songs like that. Go ahead. Mold me, shape me, form me, crush me, smash me, break me. And then he does it. <laughs> the potter can make or remake the pot any way he wants, for any purpose he wants. Maybe it was a candlestick. Now it's a garbage receptacle. He can do that. But why? There's a question again. Why would the potter do that? Why would the potter choose to remake something he already made? Same answer. Did you see up there the word if? If they repent, and if they relent, then I'll relent and I won't do it. God is like that. The master potter makes and remakes people and even whole nations, yes, even the nation of Israel, based on how he knows they'll respond to him. So if we respond to God with sin and hardness and unbelief, God has to work with that. If we respond to God with repentance and softness and faith and submission, God works with that too. So the key, of course, is how you and I respond to God. I want to make this personal. I know Romans 9 is about Israel, but what about you? And what about me? How and why does God choose? God chooses people he knows will choose him, simply. That's about it. So today, I hope every one of you for the first time or the 10,000th time, will choose him and say, go ahead, make me, shape me, mold me. Do it again. Do it again. Ten years ago, my whole life changed. Everything. Squish, squish, squish. Smush, smush, smush. I'm thankful. Thank you, Potter. I encourage you today to respond to God in faith, not legalism, not trying to do all the do's and don't all the don'ts. That never worked. It never was supposed to work. It's faith, like he said there at the end of Romans 9. If your heart is hard today, and maybe you know it is, respond to God today by asking him to forgive you, yeah, and make your heart soft again. Surrender. Isn't that a beautiful word? Surrender your life and your heart and yourself to the master potter so he can make you or remake you into whatever he wants you and me to be. Let's all close our eyes. Thank you. We're going to pray a prayer that I wrote for all of us to pray together. And I think we can all pray every one of these words together. 
maybe for the first time, like I said, maybe you're ready to surrender day one right now to him. Or maybe you're like me, 50, 60 years later, one and all, let's pray this prayer together. Follow after me. Lord, thank you that you are the Lord. You know everything. You make everything work out for good. God, please forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my unbelief. Forgive me for ever having a hard heart. Right now, I repent of my sin. I turn to you in faith. Thank you for having mercy and compassion on me. I surrender my life to you. Make my heart soft. Make me what you want me to be. Thank you for choosing me. I choose you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at unitechurchak.org. We hope to see you soon.